Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your afternoon again today. We appreciate everybody that stops by to check out the healthcare experts that we bring to you every week. This week, we're sitting down with a group of uh, physicians that are specialists in pain management. And um, Dr. Randy Reiser, Dr. John Porter, and Dr. Charlie McNeil are joining us from the Physician Spine and Rehabilitation Specialist Group here in um, the Atlanta area. And they've got several offices spread around the community. And uh, I want to say to these folks, uh, thanks for taking some time. I know you all are busy. I appreciate you taking a a little bit of uh, time out of your day to share some information about this topic for folks. So I appreciate you all sitting down. Well, our pleasure to be here. And if you would, um, Charlie, we'll start with you. From what I understand, uh, the group of you have a, a long background of working together, both uh, starting out as anesthesiologists back in, in the day before subspecializing further into the pain management specialty. So kind of take me back in, in time a little bit. How did you get into medicine? What made you choose that path? And then anesthesia, I almost went down that road back long ago. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about your story, and then we'll kind of fast forward to today where we're talking more about the, the practice and how you're helping folks. I'll be glad to. I uh, am an Atlanta native. I uh, went to college in Florida and was uh, interested in going into business after college. And I was getting a, a master's in business administration when I was drafted in 1968, as many of us were. Uh, I uh, opted to try to go into something that wouldn't send me to Vietnam at the time, so I signed up for two extra years to go into foreign language training, Uh, but as uh, luck would have it, the language they chose for me was Vietnamese. (laughs) So I went to to Vietnamese language school for a year and a half, uh, spent uh, another half a year learning how to break codes and uh, interpret uh, uh, messages uh, from Vietnamese into English. And I then uh, uh, spent a year in Vietnam. While I was in Vietnam, I was the only uh, English-speaking person in the area. a New Zealand uh, medical team was there setting up a hospital for the indigent patients. They did not trust uh, their uh, interpreters because of the political situation and the war going on. So I would go over once a week and make rounds with them in the hospital. So I had never experienced anything in medicine before, uh, but it piqued my interest. And when I uh, finished up my Army career um, after another year in Washington, I said, well, rather than going to business school, I think I'll go to medical school. And so I had to go back, do a year and a half of pre-med studies at Georgia Tech, and then went to Emory, uh, graduating there in 1977. Uh, I uh, decided to go into anesthesiology. Uh, That was something that really, again, uh, was very interesting to me. And I was lucky enough at Emory and Grady to do a residency in anesthesiology and be exposed to a fellow named Dr. Evan Fredrickson, who was an anesthesiologist, but was also a fairly well-known nationally uh, specialist in the using anesthesia techniques for pain. Uh, the 
area of pain medicine was not yet formed. It was there were a few pain clinics in the world, uh, three or four in this country that had of any, that were of any note. Uh, but I had the, um, uh, the wonderful experience of following Dr. Fredrickson around for two years during my three years of residency and uh, figured that that was an area that needed to be used, uh, utilized the anesthesia-based uh, techniques for pain. In 1980, uh, St. Joseph's Hospital here in Atlanta was looking for a new anesthesia team to take over their open heart business and to enhance their anesthesia ability. So five of us from Emory um, went and took over the anesthesia department at St. Joseph's, and my part of the business was to form a pain clinic. So starting in 1980, uh, I started a pain clinic at St. Joseph's. That was before. There was some pain work being done at Kennestone, but otherwise, other than Emory, there really was not much in the, in the, in the city uh, being done in, in the area of pain. Uh, I started doing pain uh, work uh, on patients in need uh, in between the anesthesia cases. Uh, eventually, um, Dr. Porter joined the St. Joseph's group in 1983, I believe, and then uh, Dr. Reiser in 86 or 87. Um, in 80, by 85, though, the practice at St. Joseph's in the anesthesia department in the, in the recovery room had grown to such an extent that we opened up uh, the first freestanding uh, pain uh, clinic. It was still affiliated, affiliated with St. Joseph's. It was across the street from St. Joseph's. Uh, but uh, there were three of us, uh, three of the anesthesiologists who would spend days over there doing nothing but uh, primarily injections and then a few medication management patients. Uh, we would see everything from cancer to spine to uh, folks with injured limbs. Uh, in 80... About 1990, uh, we uh, became even more involved in pain. Dr. Reiser and uh, Dr. Porter and myself uh, had become fairly experienced in the, in the area of pain. And so we uh, became even more involved and started doing pain uh, almost exclusively. Dr. Reiser and I uh, opted out from doing anesthesia in the operating room, except when we were on call. And for many days of the week, we did nothing but pain management. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the three of us, uh, starting in 1994-95, decided, why don't we go into uh, pain management as an exclusive practice? Pain had become such an intensive uh, area of expertise that the knowledge base to do both anesthesia and pain was very difficult to do. Interesting. So we, uh, we formed our own uh, corporation and uh, started deciding to separate from the anesthesia group. And that's where my history ends, and I'll let one of my other colleagues take that up. <laughs> well, let's just move over and, and, and hear a little bit about your story, Dr. Reiser. Well, my, my uh, clinical experience in medicine has come full circle from when I started um, my training. Uh, I grew up in Ohio, went to medical school in Ohio, and went to uh, Dartmouth to do a uh, residency in general surgery and uh, started two years of general surgery, and after somewhere during the second year, um, I began to get a little bit irritated with all of the patients that would uh, interrupt me in the middle of the night by calling saying they were having pain after their surgery. <laughs> and I became interested in the uh, anesthesia department. I thought, you know, anesthesia is pretty good specialty because you, your patients don't complain, they just lie there asleep. Right. And so, um, I, after uh, two years, I switched uh, specialties into anesthesiology and uh, became an anesthesiologist. 
after a couple years of, uh, of doing that, I began realizing that uh, that personal contact with patients means something. And so um, I became uh, more interested in the way patients felt, and I, I enjoyed the idea of uh, using my anesthesia skills to do nerve blocks on people that were having pain problems. Um, I, when I moved to Atlanta in 1983 after uh, a, a year of teaching at the University of Virginia, I was at uh, Crawford Long Hospital first and then went to North Fulton Hospital. I um, went to St. Joseph's in 1987, again with the idea of using my anesthesia skills, primarily helping with the uh, open heart surgery. However, I noticed uh, Charlie's work there in pain management and got more and more interested in the, in the idea of pain management. As he explained, uh, I, I continued to get more invested in pain management and less in surgery, so here I am, once, <laughs> once again, lis listening to my patients who are complaining in pain. <laughs> now, from what I understand, you and John actually had crossed paths before you ended up here in Atlanta, is that right? John and I were residents together at Dartmouth. As, as a matter of fact, uh, he, he came on as a uh, uh, resident in anesthesiology the year that I was the chief resident there. So. Oh, was he a good chief? He was a very good chief. <laughs> <laughs> so now was your move to Atlanta just by chance, or, or had you guys become friends? And, and, you know, when you, when, you, when you ended up, just, John, you, you came later or before? Randy ended up here in the city. Yeah, I came to Atlanta in in, um, in the early 80s because a uh, uh, professor of mine at Dartmouth had come here in private practice, and he was at Crawford Long, and so I joined him first. Um, and then John came later, basically through um, uh, the Emory training program. Okay, so you came down to do some more training here in, yeah. in the city. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So take me a little bit through... What inspired you to go well, down the career I, path of anesthesia and beyond? I was always interested in pharmacology. So that's the study of medications, how they work, and, and by extension, um, certain chemicals that were pain-relieving chemicals. So when I was at Dartmouth, like Randy said, we worked together, and uh, not only in the clinical realm of anesthesiology, but we were looking for chemicals, endorphins, uh, that might be pain-relieving chemicals. Uh, Randy was doing some work with sheep, and he did uh, the first intrathecal infusion that I'm aware of, uh, putting uh, opioids like morphine into the cerebral spinal fluid of sheep with the goal of seeing uh, whether it was pain-relieving. I was looking at the chemicals, we thought that there were endorphins in spinal fluid of pregnant women. Hmm. So we were trying to figure out how is it that, that women are able to tolerate childbirth without inordinate pain. And having never been through childbirth, I don't know whether there's inordinate pain or not, but I think there is. It seems to be. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we were collecting spinal fluid, looking for these uh, chemicals called endorphins, and that's really where, where my interest in pain management started. But I had another interest. I, I really liked the way pharmacology worked related to the heart. And so I was interested in cardiac anesthesia as well. And as it turns out, in the early 80s, Emory and Atlanta were, were the center, the mecca for open heart surgery. Oh. Um, Emory had brought on this, this unknown Swiss cardiologist, Andreas Grunzig, 
who had this crazy idea that you could blow up a balloon in people's hearts and, and open up the blood vessels. I think most of the world thought he was just going to kill people, but Emory took a chance, and this is where angioplasty really developed. So it was an, it was an exciting place. Yeah, what a cool thing to be a part of in the early days well, when yeah, it was getting started. It's an changed anas- the landscape. As an anesthesiologist, yeah. it was really important because all the time when they blew up those balloons in people's hearts, a lot of people didn't do so well. Right. So they required emergency in, surgery, uh, cabbages, yeah. which is where, where I came in. So I came here to do a fellowship in cardiac anesthesiology. And as it so happened that one of the guys I worked with was Charlie's younger brother, Don. <laughs> now, I knew Randy was here because we'd been friends in New Hampshire, and, and the fellow he joined, Don Hooper, was one of my professors also. So we were friends all along, and then it just so happened when I left Emory, uh, Charlie's younger brother said, why don't you go talk to my brother, Charlie? He's... Uh, He's looking for another guy who can do cardiac anesthesiology and pain management. So that's how I ended up at St. Joseph's. And uh, Randy and I, as I said, had been friends all, all along. And, and when we were looking to expand at St. Joe's, I called Randy, and, and he came and joined us. Oh, that's great. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of connections. We've been talking with doctors Randy Reiser, Dr. John Porter, and Charlie McNeil of Physician Spine and Rehabilitation Specialists of Georgia, learning about their background, how they got into anesthesia, and now uh, learning about how they began to subspecialize beyond that into the field of pain management, as many anesthesiologists do today. And and you know, Charlie, we can kind of get into that. Was it the three of you that were essentially the, the seed or the, the core of, of the practice once you started? Or what was that, what was yes, that process uh, like? As I said, we were all uh, anesthesiologists at St. Joseph's, but we were also essentially the pain clinic at St. Joseph's. Yeah. And we uh, attempted to um, purchase the pain clinic at St. Joseph's, but that was not something that ever worked out from a business standpoint. So we formed our own corporation. Uh, Randy got it started in late 1995 while uh, Dr. Porter and I uh, finished out our required uh, uh, stay at St. Joseph's uh, from a contractual standpoint. Uh, Randy got it started. We looked for, we found a place to uh, work uh, at one of the outpatient surgery centers uh, uh, that was allowed, that would uh, uh, avail us of a surgery center to perform procedures, but also office space to see patients. So from uh, 95 until about 97, the three of us were the exclusive members of the group. And then we started expanding fairly rapidly. Uh, We added uh, facilities in Marietta. Uh, We had facilities across the state at one time, but found out that uh, hiring other physicians and uh, trying to have them do the quality of care that we wanted to was kind of like the uh, the cliche of herding cats. It yeah, was it's very challenging. Difficult. Yeah. Very difficult. Um, we had an excellent administrator, uh, Shannon Serfozo, who came with us uh, from St. Joseph's, and she uh, was the overseer of uh, much of the development of our business and our number of practices. And then uh, as we matured, we found that we were able to handle three or four locations, which is what we have right now. I would imagine that as you're trying to hire providers to come in and provide this sort of clinical care that you really got to have somebody that pays attention to the patient side pretty heavily. They're unhappy, they're, they're, they're dealing with chronic pain, and, and so 
what that interaction is like from an interpersonal perspective has got to be a key component, I would imagine, from a compliance perspective with whatever they may be needing to do uh, or just about how they report their experience with you. I can imagine if they're already in a bad place and then they come in and they interface with somebody that doesn't quite have that piece, I'm sure that's the big challenge for you to, as you grow your practice, just to make sure that somebody brings with that. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, uh, the definition of the pain state is one of a biopsychosocial state. So you're talking about psychological inputs, environmental inputs, uh, the regular physiologic inputs, the generation of pain, and then how any individual processes those. And when we talk about pain, I mean, can you share about what does the typical patient look like? Who, who? I mean, obviously, I would. For me, I I think of orthopedic procedures that leave somebody with some pain down downstream from that. Uh, you know, maybe for a long period of time or accidents, different things like that that can cause pain. But that's not the only thing you would treat. I would imagine there's other elements like fibromyalgia, which I'd like to understand a little bit more about, for example. But uh, tell me what who who tends to need to think about linking up with a group such as yours. Well, our our Different uh, pain practices will specialize in different aspects of pain because it's such a broad, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a broad issue and encompasses a lot of body systems. The, um, the our practice uh, specializes in uh, spinal pain, and so we basically take care of spinal and musculoskeletal problems. So our patients will uh, typically be patients who have uh, had a spinal injury, uh, herniated disc. Uh, back strains, um, degenerative changes from aging, like uh, spinal arthritis, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Those will be the typical uh, patients that we'll see. Also, patients with uh, uh, different types of injuries, uh, whiplash injuries, automobile injuries. And we also specialize in patients with uh, work-related injuries. I see. And, and so when I become a patient, say I come to you with a uh, uh, maybe I've had a, a disc procedure in the past, or I've got some disc degeneration. What's, what is my, my course of care? What, what can I experience or expect to experience as far as, is it an ongoing kind of treatment? How, how long does this type of treatment typically last? It, well, it um, depends on the type of problem, of course. Um, a lot of uh, acute injuries are short-acting or short-lasting. Mm-hmm. So your typical back strain or disc injury may be a problem you have to deal with for um, a period of weeks or months, and then you'll recover. Um, other problems, such as degenerative disease of the spine for aging, that may be something that you have for the rest of your life. So you have to tailor the treatment program based on the uh, perspective uh, prognosis for the condition uh, and uh, that is really takes a lot of um, uh, clinical uh, acumen on the part of the physician one thing you don't want to do in a long-term illness is to try to invoke a short-term solution that may leave the patient in worse condition than what they started so the, a lot of the problems we see are patients that had surgery Perhaps when maybe waiting and managing and trying to rehabilitate the patient would have been a lot better treatment ahead of time. Um, And uh, knowing when to apply the right treatment for the maximum effect without creating problems uh, that will bother the patient into the future 
is really the key to medical decision making and pain management. It sounds like that pharmacology isn't the only thing that we're talking about here. I mean, I think most people out there that's listening when we're talking about pain management think, oh, pain medication, and these doctors are giving me pain medication. But it, it sounds like that it's obviously much more involved than that. We're talking about maybe re rehabilitation measures where there's perhaps movements or different things that I would be doing that would create maybe greater flexibility, um, things like that that might possibly relieve my pain either fully or at least in good part without necessarily having to take some sort of medication. Am I on the right track? You're on the right track. And when someone comes to our practice, uh, you are dealing with board certified specialists, people who have not only been certified in their primary specialty, such as anesthesiology in our case, but also in pain medicine, which is an altogether different process, a subspecialty uh, certification. When you are a certified pain specialist or pain medicine specialist, you are considered a consultant. You're not there just to do an injection or give a medication based on the referring physician's uh, expectation or, or, uh, or request. You are there to consult and to determine, if you can, what the source of the patient's pain is and then what's the course of treatment. And we have various treatment protocols that will put the patient through. Some of those protocols include the use of oral medications, physical therapy, um, massage therapy, uh, psychotherapy, but you also have protocols that involve certain types of procedures that, number one, are diagnostic, trying to come up with the source of the pain, uh, what's called a pain generator, and then once you have determined that, you have a set of procedures that may help the patient either buy them some time so that physical therapy or other exercises can help them, or that they can become more active and go back to work very quickly rather than waiting for the long-time healing process to take over. So the certification process that we had to go through to become board certified gives you the basis to make these decisions from all different types of patients. We spend at least 30 to 45 minutes for the first visit, oftentimes up to an hour, just listening to the patient, having them draw their picture of their pain, what they think or where they feel their pain is located. And then we come up with a plan as to how to help them reduce pain and become more active. Those are the two primary focuses of our of our treatment. Mm -hmm. And what is the what are the t common pain engines as you, as you described the the, the causal you know the, of of my pain? What obviously if I've got a joint injury, for example, I've got some torn cartilage or ligaments, whatever the case may be, or maybe I've got some bony de degeneration from say arthritis or something like that. Um, obviously that's going to cause some measure of pain, which is easy to understand. But what about other things that might cause pain that begin to disrupt my quality of life? What are other things that might be something that would drive somebody to you? The, the, um, the major tissues that are involved in the generation of pain are going to be soft tissues, uh, nerve, bone, joint, that sort of thing. So part of what we're trying to do is determine which of those tissues is involved in the generation of pain because the treatment is different. If you're dealing with arthritic pain, that's different than muscular pain. If you're dealing with nerve pain um, in the situation of a disc herniation, you might be dealing with pain being generated from a spinal nerve root. Mm -hmm. That's your classic sciatica, the burning, stinging, electric pain radiating down the leg. In some people who have headache pain, that's a different sort of pain or 
pain of trigeminal neuralgia or pain of nerve injury. So a, a lot of this is to determine what is the source of pain generation to actually make an accurate diagnosis because you'll most effectively be able to treat someone if you have an accurate diagnosis. One of the biggest problems we see on a constant basis is people being treated with no real good diagnosis. Sometimes you have to, I guess, but that's not ideal. Mm-hmm. You really want to know what the pain is. Right. And that, that's got to be one of the big challenges for the, for the specialist in this field is, is that, at least from what I, from what I know, which is limited on, on the issue of, of pain itself, but it, it, it would seem that it's going to rely almost entirely on subjective information from from the patient is that right i mean are there other things you can do diagnostically speaking outside of a clinical inter- interview that would let you know they're having pain obviously vital signs can give you some measure of indication i would suppose if their heart rate's fast and things like that and blood pressure and so forth but what are the measures you can use to determine pain well that's a our practice has sort of a um, a saying that we uh, use and it's diagnose treat and rehabilitate in that order. So to your point on diagnosis, the there is no uh, pain meter. There's nothing like an EKG you can run on somebody and, and find out where the pain's coming from. Uh, imaging studies are notoriously inaccurate in showing the cause of pain. So if you have somebody with back pain doing a spinal x-ray or a lumbar MRI itself um, may not actually give you good information in terms of where the pain's coming from. Um, One of the things that we'll do in terms of looking for a pain generator is to do what we call precision diagnostic injections. And uh, let's take, for example, someone who has a uh, neck injury and whiplash. There is um, good scientific evidence that the majority of whiplash pain comes from injury to the cervical facet joints, which are joints in the back of the spine. And the cervical facet joints, however, will produce different symptoms in different people with their injury. Some people will get primarily headaches. Some people will get primarily arm pain or shoulder pain. Some people will get neck pain. And yet, so a single structure, the facet joint, can produce all of those symptoms. So just a patient telling you the symptoms doesn't tell you where the pain's coming from. Gotcha. Just getting an x-ray won't really show anything because right. the x-rays are normally... A bony structure. And that's it just about looks it. Yeah. the same. So what we do is if we suspect a facet uh, injury, we can do precision injections of very tiny amounts of local anesthetic injected through very tiny needles that are guided under x-ray into the joint. And we place the local anesthetic in and anesthetize the joint with the medication. If the pain is coming from that joint, uh, the patient notices pain relief almost immediately following the injection. Hmm. If that patient then notices pain relief that is consistent with the duration of action of the medication that we've injected, then we've helped to make the diagnosis and we can isolate that specific joint. Gotcha. Going on then, there are other treatments we can apply. There are some long-term nerve block procedures that we call radiofrequency ablation that will help to produce long-term pain relief in patients where we've identified a painful joint, and we can apply rehabilitation. 
So we go through the diagnose, treat, and rehabilitate uh, algorithm in most of the patients that we see in order to come up with the right diagnosis and the right treatment. Talk about the radiofrequency ablation. What's happening when you're when you're performing that kind of procedure? I mean, ablation in my memory from being clinical, I mean, typically I'm thinking about um, we're zapping a, a, you know, a, a fussy spot in the atrium that's making the heartbeat fast, for example, St- things like that. Well, what, what are we doing when we're talking this kind of pain? To ablate means to destroy or to uh, get rid of it for a short period of time or a long period of time, depending on what, what structure you're looking at. What we're doing in a radiofrequency ablation of the facet joints, for instance, which are, as uh, Randy said, um, the, the, are the, uh, the joints along the back of the spine that uh, provide uh, alignment and uh, positioning of your spinal, spinal bones, the facet joints are uniquely painful. They have a single nerve in each joint. And this is fed by the nerve from above and below the joint. And so once we have made a diagnosis by making that joint numb and seeing if the patient gets better, and the, and the, the results are oftentimes very dramatic, then you go back and you place a probe, which is a needle-like probe, uh, just above and just below the facet, and you do it uh, based on the patient's input. In other words, we make the skin numb, we place the probe on the facet nerve, and then we generate a very tiny amount of electrical energy. And if the patient feels that energy as a tingle at a certain level of energy, then we know that we're close to, if not right on, the facet nerve. Mm-hmm. Once we've made the nerve numb, then we cook it, or in some other person's other 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 faces, we've heard people say they burn the nerves. Well, we cook it at a at a point just below boiling, but the patient doesn't feel it if you've made the patient numb, and that ablates or gets rid of that little nerve that only services the facet for anywhere from six to nine to twelve months. There are patients who go longer, but that's what we usually give as a expectation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nerve is not important for skin sensation. It's not important for muscle function. It's not important. You'll still, if you have something harmful that happens to your neck, you'll still feel it. It's just that the nerve that was servicing the facet that was causing your pain is gone for a number of months. And in that kind of case, you were talking about it. Um, uh, you know, Randy was mentioning the fact that it often is used for people who have some sort of whiplash-type injury. I, I would then assume for many people that come with that, maybe they've been an MBA or a wreck, um, and they've got an injury that with that kind of time, six or nine months or so, then perhaps the injury itself that caused that pain to begin with may have time to resolve such that once the effects of your ablation wear off, then maybe they continue with little or no pain that, that they can Right. With the ablation, with. you're buying the patient some time. Okay. You're giving them a pain-free episode. You're reducing muscle spasm. You are allowing increased uh, rotation and movement of that joint. So you can do exercising much more easily, and you can hopefully have the patient recover by that time frame and during which the ablation is active. Now, something I know that you work with, uh, platelet-rich plasma, uh, something I'm familiar with from our own practice, we uh, can employ platelet-rich plasma in in some um, refractory wounds, for example, that aren't healing really. How how are you using that kind of technology to to treat pain? Well, this is the holy grail of regenerative medicine. 
how to how to be able to inject a substance that would allow normal regeneration of tissue. Uh, the plasma-rich protein that you're talking about has a number of growth factors as well as stem cells. And stem cells are, a, uh, for the audience who doesn't know anything about them, they're a, they're a primitive cell which can develop into any type of cell, so any cell that it's surrounded by. You could inject stem cells into the heart muscle and it will help reconstitute heart muscle. Um, but what, what the problem is, it's hard to find stem cells. In the, the political climate we have in this country, you can't get stem cells where you would normally, uh, where they're present in the greatest amount, and that is uh, in fetuses. So we can't do that but you can harvest stem cells from other locations. For instance, human fat has stem cells, mm. but in a very dilute form. So uh, there's a company in California that does uh, liposuction, collects stem cells, and then you can inject those stem cells. What, what we do is we take an individual's blood and you can centrifuge the blood and you get a small amount of stem cells and other growth factors that then can be injected into damaged tissue and will help the tissue regenerate. So you could inject into the facet joints like Charlie was talking about, or you could inject into knees or elbows. There are lots of applications for this. Interesting. Um, I never would have imagined it in, in, in such a, you know, an application, but it's, I guess it makes sense. I mean, it's much the same force, if you will, uh, in, in terms of helping that wound go to heal it's the same factors that you're describing so it's very interesting that it has an application here what are some other innovations that that you you employ that will help somebody to be able to achieve a high level of, of comfort compared to where they were when they first came in one of the uh, um, procedures that I've become very enamored with because the success rate has been very high is it's a, a commercial name called the Tenex T-E-N-E-X the Tenex procedure uh, what it is is a method by which you can help someone with tendonitis, typically of the elbow, the shoulder, the foot, the knee, anywhere where there's a, a muscular attachment to bone and that attachment has either broken loose or been damaged in the past. The tendon may not heal. The tendon, which is the connection between the muscle and the bone, may not heal back along the bone in a in a very smooth uh, fashion, and leaves either scar tissue or some necrotic or dead tissue in that healing process. And it becomes typically a very point tender uh, elbow, a point tender heel, or a point tender shoulder that bothers the patient. They go through physical therapy, they go through injections with cortisone, they go through a number of different procedures and it still is exquisitely painful for them. So the patient comes to the office, I do an ultrasound evaluation, which is a technique by which I can see the tendon attachment to the bone. And if there is this little area of scar or dead tissue that's in the midst of the tendon and it, is correlate, it correlates well with the point tenderness of the patient, then I tell them that I can do a procedure where I essentially suck out that portion of the tendon that's not functional, do it under local anesthesia, and typically within four to six weeks, their pain problem is resolved, and the ultrasound comes back as a normal-looking ultrasound. Hmm. I didn't believe it when I first started it. I thought this was a bunch of hokey that really was not going to work. 
I started doing a few and the results were pretty incredible, especially on elbows and on the, pla uh, the uh, fascia of the foot and on the knees, interestingly. And so these were people who had had, it's not crippling pain, but it's just pain that keeps yeah, them from doing what they want to do. Right. There's no outward sign of a problem. But on ultrasound, they have this defect. We suck it out, and they come back six weeks later, and they're most of them. I mean, I think out of 28 patients or 29 that I've done now, I think only one has not gotten any benefit. It doesn't make them any worse, but the results have been pretty dramatic. I've been talking with three physicians from Physician Spine and Rehabilitation Specialists of Georgia, Randy Reiser, John Porter, and Charlie McNeil, and we were learning about some of the different ways that they are able to help patients who are experiencing refractory pains, and I've been getting better, and, and you were talking about some injuries that you're able to treat. I'm curious, is it possible to... Uh, using myself as an example, at some point um, doing some training in the gym, I you know I know that I have injured my shoulder. I haven't gone to uh, to get it, you know, done a CT or anything like that or an MRI to to get it evaluated for exactly what it is. Um, the pain over time got better to the place where it doesn't bother me nearly as much, and it's it's much less frequent. It's still there, but um, for somebody like me who has Clearly some measure of, uh, you know, probably either a cartilage injury or some, something like that. Is it possible to or, or advisable to go down a path like this where I might be able to manage some of my pain without having to go through a surgery? Or, or does it typically uh, progress through go to get treatment through a surgical approach first for something like that versus employing a specialist like yourself? A lot of uh, injury type uh, pain is uh, becomes more complex because after injury, the uh, normal use pattern of the extremity is altered. Mm -hmm. So in your case with your shoulder, you may have injured your shoulder at one point overdoing it. Uh, your response to that injury has been to reduce the range of motion of your shoulder, mm -hmm. especially through the area that's painful. So what begins to happen is you begin to lose more range of motion of your shoulder and movement becomes more painful and you get into sort of a uh, vicious cycle right. of, um, of uh, pain, decreased function, more pain, more decreased function. So you say, okay, I'm going to go to a physical therapist and have them stretch it out. Well, the problem is if, if um, you're already having pain with restricted range of motion, when the physical therapist goes to increase your range of motion, you experience more pain. So you say the physical therapy made it worse, so you say that doesn't work. Right. Um, <clears throat> You may try to take pain medications, but the medications uh, may help a little bit while you're, you know, not moving much, but they still don't do anything to increase your range of motion. So how do you get back what you've lost? It's not necessarily uh, mean that you're headed for the orthopedic surgeon and for arthroscopy or, or uh, rotator cuff repair or something. It may be as simple as trying to provide some pain relief to give you a window of opportunity to get rehabilitated through increasing your range of motion through physical therapy. Again, our diagnose, treat, and rehabilitate um, uh, algorithm that we use. So we can look at your shoulder uh, using uh, ultrasound in the office and look and see if there's any major tendon or ligament injury or any signs of inflammation. If there's no sign of major injury, uh, we can do a uh, injection of uh, local anesthetic and steroid medication right there in the office and see if we can get the pain relief you need in reducing that pain to then get you back into physical therapy, get your shoulder mobilized, 
get the muscles strong again so that they can restabilize your shoulder. And that may be all that's needed. I see. So it is possible, potentially, if I don't really want to go down the route of surgery, because I know for a lot of people that that path fixes me, you know, fixes the tear or whatever it may be um, in terms of the injury goes. But uh, obviously, uh, I've known people myself, they end up with an infection in there, and that turned out to be problematic. You know what I'm saying? So surgery in and of itself, particularly like on your foot or, or a joint that's so critical to your everyday activities, and uh, I can see a lot of people being hesitant if, if, if they can take another path, perhaps. Well, most people forget that when you undertake surgery, there's not just one possible outcome. Yeah. The one possible outcome you hope for is that everything will be cured, you'll have no problems, and you'll go back to your normal existence. Yeah. But uh, like that old TV game show where there are three doors and you have to choose what's behind. <laughs> That's right. Behind the second door, you go through all of that and you don't get any better. And worst, worst possible is the third door where you go through it all and you get worse. Mm -hmm. So I think most people are realistic. You, you want to be the least aggressive you can, but you want to be effective. I mean, we're all of a certain age at this table. Uh, Shannon, maybe. Yeah, I would guess, but, but looking around, uh, late, late 20s, uh, early 30s. We're all of a certain age at this table, and, and, and we realize that, that you're going to have some pain in life. Yeah. Pain isn't necessarily a bad thing, but when it occupies your mind and, yeah. and you're not able to function, it's a different story. We also realize that our real goal is function. Functional goals are the most important. So injections, treatment, they all serve to get us where we want to be functionally. That's, I think that's really the key here. And as Randy was saying, if you can do something in a less aggressive fashion rather than a more aggressive fashion, yeah, I think you're ultimately better off. What's it like for, for, for the folks out there listening, that whether they themselves or maybe one of their loved ones are dealing with some pain, um, what's the process of getting linked up with specialists like you? For, for someone to come to a group like ours at the wound and hyperbaric medicine practice that I'm a part of, they got to be referred by a physician to us. It's, it's, most people can't self-refer. If they do self-refer, we still have to contact their physician to say, hey, the patient's here. This is, they, need, uh, they need a referral. Um, what's it like to, to get involved with a pain specialist such as yourself? We are... Um pretty much referral only. We have a, a large referring group of physicians uh, or chiropractors or uh, physical therapists. We, uh, it is the typical pathway is that you have your primary care, your orthopedist, your neurosurgeon, your rheumatologist, whoever it is that is seeing you and uh, your pain has not responded to the usual um, very conservative measures then we would be the next step. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, I mean, we do get, I, I take referrals from family members if I think I can help. But I usually, uh, that my, my job there is to direct the patient to maybe to another specialist if I think they have something that I can't handle. Mm -hmm. But referral is, uh, is by far the preferred way of doing it. I see. Yes. And um, based on what you're saying, it would seem that for specialists like you and the care you provide, insurance is going to pay for any of that care, or is it all self-pay? Oh, no. <laughs> no, it's, it's uh, almost ex not exclusively, but it's, it's, it's pretty much entirely so, um, insurance only. We, I see. We, we, um, we, uh, this, this is something where insurance is, is immediately assessed, and uh, it certainly could be self-pay, but, um, but most of the procedures, 
I think almost all the procedures that we do are pretty much that's uh, good. Yeah. And I think it's good for folks to know that the insurance will cover yeah. um, this kind of care, and and uh, that you know having access to that may not be out of reach. No, everything we do is is really in in the mainstream of medicine. It's it's covered by by almost every insurance carrier, covered by Medicare, um, and we we try to make sure that we do things in such a way that um, you know our procedures and our practice um, uh, correspond and comply with all the standards that would be necessary for that coverage to occur. Uh, we do all of our procedures in uh, surgery centers. Uh, they're single specialty surgery centers that we have developed and that we own, but they're fully licensed by the state, fully licensed by Medicare. And as, as I mentioned before, I guess the how long I'll be with you depends on what's wrong with me. It might be just a single injection or two, uh, but it sounds like on some cases I may have some ongoing rehabilitation and I can do that with you as well. That's correct. We, uh, I have seen patients, I uh, have been in practice for quite a while. I've got some patients I've seen for up to 20 years. Uh, they do well with occasional injection. They do well with very minimal medications, but uh, my, my, they are chronic pain patients who have had the same issues for many years. There's no cure for what they've got, but it does, uh, it does allow them to work, to be functional, and uh, with the fewest side effects. And talk about that a little bit for, for that kind of patient who is dealing with something that's taking years. It's not going away. That I don't get, I'm not one of those folks that falls into the benefit of six or nine months gets me through my injury. Now mm -hmm. I'm back more or less to where I was before I was hurt. What is what is a reasonable expectation for my level of improvement? I mean, what I, I'm, obviously there's a continuum and severity from you know, and and how much how does this person perceive pain? But I mean, typically, what can you expect? How much how much better will I feel if I'm rating it? Well, let's let's take the um, a, a real common thing nowadays, and that's the aging spine, and our population's getting older, so you have a lot of age related. Uh, spine problems that occur just from the standard wear and tear changes over the years in, in somebody's back. So that produces a chronic pain issue. Now chronic pain doesn't mean you're in the same level of pain every day. You have good days and bad days. And you have some days where um, you can do almost everything you want to and some days where you're, you're almost non-functional. And usually those things will go through cycles. So somebody who develops back pain at the age of 50 um, uh, you're looking at trying to get that person through, you know, the next 30 years of their life, and mm -hmm. how do you, how do you do that? Well, the way that you do it is when they when they develop a pain flare-up, as we mentioned, you develop a, a decreased in function, you you lose some muscle strength, you lose some mobility, and so you fall into a hole. So you work on doing an intervention like an injection, like a radiofrequency ablation, um, that reduces the pain. And during that uh, time that the pain is reduced, and it may be reduced 100% for okay. a short period of time. Um, and during that time that that uh, pain has been markedly reduced, you use that as the therapeutic window of opportunity. Let's get back on track. Let's improve our range of motion. Let's improve our strength. Let's get you built back up. I see. And that period of uh, recovery, you know, may, la may last months, may last years. Uh, something may happen where you fall into the hole again, mm -hmm. and then you repeat the cycle. But that's what we look for is to try to give 
some uh, significant degree of pain relief that allows for that window of opportunity to restore your function, get back on track. If you fall off track again, then we re-intervene and get you back on track. I got you. Now, with a practice like ours, um, many of the patients that we can give clinical benefit to achieve a greater outcome if we get to them sooner than later. Uh, I don't know how many times we've seen a patient where we think, geez, if we could have seen this patient two, three weeks ago or more, um, their outcome, they'd still have this foot. Um, for you and your your area of clinical focus, are, from a timing perspective, are there pieces of information um, or thought processes that you wish that your colleagues out there that might be seeing these patients would be thinking about as it relates to, this is a time that I might want to get specialists like what we have here at the Physician Spine and Rehabilitation Specialists of Georgia. I want to get them over there sooner than later because maybe their outcome is improved upon. I would imagine that if my pain has been in place for a period of time, uh, that it can be become chronic. I, it, I, I may, I'm, not, I'm not very adverse in the area of pain, but it would seem to me that if I've dealt with pain longer, it's probably going to be harder to treat. Am I, am I on track or no? You are on track, and there are certainly, especially certain types of there are special, uh, especially certain types of uh, of pain syndromes that the earlier you can get them, you can even reverse the complete cycle and stop it from becoming chronic. Uh, in the acute herniated disc, uh, if they have still got function, if they are, uh, if they still know when they have to go to the bathroom, if they don't have to drag the foot into the building. They are still walking, but they are exquisitely in pain. If you get to them soon, get the inflammatory reaction cooled off, reduce the swelling of the nerve, and get them back to more normal function, you may reverse the whole outcome, and you know, uh, more aggressive treatment is not even in involved and very little time uh, out of work. On the other hand, uh, if you've got a chronic issue, such as spinal arthritis that has advanced as we age, um, we uh, use the procedures, as Randy has said, to uh, make them better temporarily, and if the pain comes back, we repeat them. But there, earlier or later, it's going to be the same issue. We just the earlier we get to you, the the uh, the less pain you're going to have down the road. Mm -hmm. So it might make sense if I, if I. If my physician hasn't talked to me about a pain specialist like yours, it might be good to ask about, hey, what about specialists like the, the folks over here uh, that would they be able to help me? One of the one of conditions, and this is in line of, of, of what Charlie was talking about, um, that has become more and more common, I think, uh, in the past 10 or 15 years, are pain conditions of the uh, extremities that evolve after an extremity injury. Uh, a classic example would be somebody that uh, falls and let's say they break their wrist or severely sprain their wrist and they're in a cast or a splint for uh, maybe uh, several weeks. And during that time in the splint, their, the pain in their arm doesn't seem to get better, it seems to get worse. And uh, to the point that uh, they may even begin to uh, lose movement in other parts of their arm, not the part that was broken. Uh, you can get stiffness in, uh, say you break your wrist and you're in a, in a cast for a while, you can start getting stiffness in your elbow or in your shoulder. Uh, this condition is, is, is very interesting and it, it, it um, is actually a spectrum of conditions. The very worst of this uh, sort is what's called RSD or CRPS. And a lot of people hear about this condition. Um, 
and it's a it's a condition that basically um, is sort of the end stage of what I'm talking about. This idea of immobilization and deconditioning producing changes in your body that actually produce more pain. This is a condition where if you jump on it faster, you're much better off. Um, as a matter of fact, a lot of doctors, when somebody's had a sprain uh, and they put them in a splint and they get more pain while they're in the splint, they'll continue to keep them in the splint, which <laughs> yeah. is exactly the opposite thing I of see. what you're supposed to do. Okay. What you need to do is get them out of the splint and get them mobilized. The problem, of course, is when you remove the splint and start moving, people complain of pain. Um, and so, again, this gets back to what we do. We have specialized nerve blocks um, that we can use in these conditions, and these are called sympathetic blocks. They're a little bit different than some of the other blocks that we've talked about. But these will provide uh, temporary pain relief that will, again, make the extremity less painful, allow the patient to get into physical therapy to get that injured extremity mobilized. And um, in many cases, this can make a huge difference between whether this is a problem that lasts for only a few weeks or something that may last for years or even the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. I know that you guys are busy. We're, <laughs> I, I always kind of marvel at how fast our time goes by. Do you have some thoughts that you wish either that patient out there listening or, or provider, whatever the case may be, that, uh, that you'd like to leave them with before we try to get you back well, to the practice? I think from my perspective, the, the big thing that your audience needs to know is pain management doesn't necessarily equate to opioid medication. Right. You know, we, we read about this. We read about the problems with medicine. There are real problems. We read about the cavalier attitude that uh, some doctors use and some, some patients use. That isn't pain management. That's, uh, that's giving out drugs, but it's not pain management. Right. So I, I don't want your audience to think that pain management and, uh, and opioid medication are the same thing. There is a defined and very limited place for opioid medication, though. It sounds like, as we've been talking today about the topic of pain management, that there's a lot to do with getting the person moving again, getting them, you know, going through some sort of rehabilitation measures that will either strengthen the, the area around that particular uh, spot where an injury may be. I, I, I was kind of impressed to hear about that piece. It was something I wouldn't necessarily think about. It seems kind of counterintuitive. The pain makes you um, stop moving, and that can actually precipitate uh, the pain lasting longer. And as I tell many of the patients, we're, many times we're not curing anything. We're not getting rid of an infection. We're not getting rid of a stroke. What we're doing is we're buying the patient time with various procedures or with medications that will increase their functionality, that will allow them to go to physical therapy or do home exercises, anything that gets them more active and reduces their pain. And I know that you've got a nice-looking website. I went out and checked it out. It's thephysicians.com, I believe, is uh, the website. I know you're on social media. I've tied in with you there on Twitter and Facebook. There are links from their website to, to get you to the social media pages that they have where they've got some great information out there. Um, for folks that may have some questions, there there's some good information that you can get on social media. You can certainly do that with us um, here through the show's page. If you haven't done so already and you're listening today, go over to uh, Facebook and Twitter. We're at Top Docs on BRX on both Facebook and Twitter. We tie in with all our guests there uh, to get you uh, information that they're putting out on a regular basis. And if you haven't 
haven't done so already, make sure you go over to the right-hand side of the Top Docs website and uh, subscribe to our web uh, to our podcast because, as as we've had here today, yet another group of. Uh, clinicians that are giving some great information that would be useful to both patients and physicians that are listening today, maybe get people access to care a little bit sooner or, or, or get you that piece of information that might help a loved one that you care about who's dealing with something. So make sure you subscribe because week in and week out, we're bringing you great physicians like we have again today with the Physician Spine Rehabilitation Specialist of, of Georgia, Dr. Randy Reiser, Dr. John Porter, and of course, Dr. Charlie McNeil, uh, taking some time out of their busy practice. Any final thoughts before we have to to, to buzz out of here. Well, I know that you all are busy. you got a practice to run. Um, I really appreciate you taking some time to join us here in the Midtown studio of uh, Business Radio X to, uh, to to share some information about this cool specialty. I really had limited exposure to it, and it sounds like there's some pretty cool innovative procedures that uh, aren't necessarily pharmacology, um, uh, or at least taking medications, perhaps, that uh, that might be able to give somebody a better quality of life. So uh, I'm really happy to have you here and share this information with the folks that come by and check out the Top Docs radio show. So, gentlemen, I appreciate uh, appreciate your time. Thanks for your time. Thank you very welcome. much. You're welcome. All right. Well, everybody out there, uh, thanks again for making us a part of your day again today. We look forward to seeing you same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 